Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, before we get into today's episode, which is going to be a long one, so just go ahead and buckle up. I just wanted to give a quick thank you to all of our donors and our monthly partners. So big shout out to you guys, because as I've said to a lot of you, and as I've said from the beginning, we've given away so much content for free whether it's our devotionals or all these podcast episodes. And we just knew that God was going to be able to step in and provide for us. And we've given the avenue for that. And that's through our donation page on our website. You can just go to www.undaunted.life backslash donate. But we've had a lot of guys drop in and just do one-time donations, but also dudes that are just, they're partnering with us on a monthly basis. They want to see more men equipped to be able to push back darkness. And they know, just like you should all know, everything that we do costs money. You know, there's a production value that we're looking to increase. There's things that we're looking to do and all these things take time and they certainly take a lot of, a lot of money as well. And so we're glad that those guys are partnering with us. We really, really appreciate all of that support. But we're going to go ahead and into today's episode, like I mentioned. This one's going to be a pretty long one, pretty lengthy one, but we're going to be going into a lot of different things because I think in the last eight or nine days, we've released as many episodes of this Boxing Afghanistan series, Boxing Afghanistan, and it's, it's just, it's been a crazy time period for everyone in the world watching what's going on in Afghanistan. Okay. And so originally the idea was, is I was, I was going to reach out to people that had been on the show before that were at least, you know, tangentially, uh, you know, aware of the situation and maybe were involved in the situation, what's going on in Afghanistan, you know, talk to them for five or 10 minutes apiece, put it in one big long episode, but we got such a great response from a lot of our guests, some that had been on the show and some that haven't been on the show before that we just decided to do them as standalone episodes, which ended up being the right thing. But as of right now, we may have some more in the future, but we've had Holly McKay, who is, he was on the ground in Afghanistan, you know, kind of, you know, actually looking at the situation as it was devolving. We had Eddie and Andrea Gallagher, Eric Blim, Mike Ritland, Taya Kyle, Eddie Penny, Brian Andrews, and Jeffrey Wilson. Mike or Michelle Black and then Eric Maddox. So we're so thankful to all of them for coming on our show and giving us their thoughts as to how these things are kind of breaking down and what it's going to look like in the future. We have a few other feelers out with some other folks, so we might do some more. But today is going to kind of be a wrap up of this series, if you can't be a wrap up, because there are some other things that I need to talk to you guys about, some other things that are very important, some other things that you all are asking me about, which we will certainly get into new episodes here in the next week or so on those things. But in terms of what we're going to go over today, but well, I guess the easiest place to start would be to what we're not going to be doing today. So what today's episode is not is it's not a detailed retelling of the history of the Afghanistan conflict and all the different points that come to play and how we got to this present day and the history of warfare in that region. That is not what we're doing. But in the show notes, we are going to leave an episode from Ben Shapiro. It's actually a little video that he did last weekend. He did a great video that kind of goes into all of that. So I'll share that with you in the show notes so you can check that out. But for today, what I'm going to be going over, here's kind of the signpost. We're going to do a brief overview of the situation in Afghanistan as it stands today to the best of our knowledge, the immediate reaction from the world, also the immediate consequences of America's actions, who is to blame for this situation, and I'll give you who I blame for this situation, the most egregious things Joe Biden and his administration have done since the fall of Afghanistan, my message to really a great many different groups of people to include veterans of Afghanistan and that war, uh, Gold Star families and the like. What the Bible has to say about refugees and sojourners, uh, the proper posture 
of Christians in America and what that should be at this time. I'm also going to give you some action steps. And if you stick with us towards the end, there are some organizations that I've been able to, to vet in the, in the best way that I know how to kind of feel safe about, you know, you potentially giving them your monetary support and those different things. And if you stick with me through the very, very end, which I hope you will certainly do that, I'm going to go over why the subtitle of this podcast is the lasting death. So let's go into the situation in Afghanistan. Okay. So there's the stuff that pretty much everybody knows. Okay. So co-president Biden, he made a time-based and not circumstances-based decision to withdraw American troops from Afghanistan, technically by September the 11th of 2021. And we've since learned that that was actually August the 31st. So here really in the next few days. And this was in defiance of basically all the advice from pretty much every living, living human being in his orbit. Okay. Now, during this withdrawal, the troop drawdown, the Taliban took over every major Afghan city in just a matter of days. It was it was ridiculously fast, including the capital city of Kabul. Uh, now, the Taliban is essentially controlling all the major cities and the entire country and the entire populace of Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban are systematically, as we speak, killing groups of people. So that namely Afghan soldiers, you know, anyone that was even tangentially helping the United States forces, Christians, as we'll get more into a little bit later. And as we sit right here, and I'm recording this the day before it comes out, as we sit right now, there's an unknown number of American citizens stuck, stranded. Yes, Jen Psaki, stranded in Afghanistan and they can't get out. The number is likely over 10,000. We can't get the State Department to tell us exactly how many American citizens have been gotten out of the country and how many are left there. Okay, they're trapped inside a country because they have no way to get to the only working airport in the country, and that's in Kabul, because we gave up Bagram Air, Air Base, and the refugees are in the same boat. Okay, and the U.S. government has given these people zero assurances, zero assurances that they will be kept safe or saved. You've had these these groups of people that have sent emails to the State Department, and they're basically like, "Hey, what's the deal? Like, uh, we don't see anybody coming to get us. You know, there's this potential deadline of August the 31st, and you know, where's the assurance that we're going to be able to get out of here?" The U.S. government is not giving that to people. So that's the stuff that people know about this situation. But then there's some stuff that most people surprisingly don't know about. So most people know that we left behind weapons and vehicles and equipment and stuff like that, and that's now in the hands of the Taliban, but they have no idea how much. So from a recent article that Jack Carr wrote for townhall.com, he said this, quote, it remains uncertain exactly how many weapons and how much ammunition we left behind, though estimates from the Government Accountability Office project our billions invested in the Afghan National Army include 600,000 weapons. 75,000 vehicles, and 200 aircraft. After 20 years of war, we managed to turn the Taliban into one of the best equipped militaries on the planet, unquote. Okay, so that's something that most of you didn't know. It's not just a few M4s and a couple of Humvees. It's an insane amount. We, we basically left them the keys to become a, a forceful military, okay? Also, the Taliban are forcing people to mark their homes with an X if that house houses a girl that is over the age of 12. The reason that they're having people do that is so that if another militant, another Taliban militant comes by later, they will be able to take possession of that girl as their bride, otherwise known as a sex slave. So here's the other thing that's kind of crazy about that. If the Taliban finds a home that is housing a girl that is at least 12 years of age and the family did not put a red X outside the building on the house, the entire family is being executed. A lot of people don't know that's happening. Also, married women over the age of 25 are being sold into sex slavery. There's a pastor on the ground that actually said this last week, quote, husbands and fathers have given their wives and daughters guns and told them that when the Taliban come, they can choose to kill them or kill themselves. It is their choice, unquote. 
So also the Taliban is reportedly going door to door searching for Christians. Okay. They're searching their phones for Bible apps, right? So, so like the ESV Bible or the blue letter Bible or U version, they're searching for apps. If a Bible app is found, they're reportedly killing these people immediately. Uh, and there's estimates right now. It's impossible to have the exact number, but estimates that there are between 3000 and 12,000 Christians in Afghanistan. That's a country of around 38 million people, but only a few hundred are publicly identified as Christian because in this country, they will actually have you put your, uh, your faith affiliation on your identification card. And only a few hundred people have made the bold step of calling themselves Christian in a country that has been coalesced under a constitution of Islamic law. Okay. So, but, but again, it's, it's almost impossible to know the real number of Christians there, but currently Christians are reportedly fleeing to the mountainside, the countryside, and they're just trying to do everything that they can to live. And there's a quote I wanted to read you from Frontier Alliance International. This is a group that helps with refugees all over the world, Christian refugees. They said this quote, the Taliban has a hit list of known Christians that they are targeting to pursue and kill. The U.S. Embassy is defunct and there is no longer a place, a safe place for believers to take refuge. All borders to neighboring countries are closed and all flights to and from have been halted with the exception of private planes. People are fleeing into the mountains looking for asylum. They are fully reliant on God, who is the only one who can and will protect them, end quote. So just an absolutely stunning situation there. And guys, by the time you listen to this podcast, some of the stuff that I told you is going to be out of date. Uh, there's going to be worse things that, that are happening. A lot of people are saying the situation in Afghanistan, specifically around the Kabul airport, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, there's really nothing to say that it's not going to happen that way. So I'm, I'm really, really sad about that. But let's go into the reaction here, because the reaction has been kind of interesting to watch. There's been literal universal international condemnation of what the Biden administration has done, which is shocking. Our allies are saying how stupid this was. Democrats in our own country are, are, are saying how stupid this was. Like, how could you possibly botch something this badly? Well, if you've been paying attention to Joe Biden for any length of time, you know that he's perfectly capable of being an absolute moron. But the thing that's been interesting, at least up to this point, is there's been very little media spin, at least initially which I was shocked by. I was thinking we were going to have a 24-hour cycle before we started getting the media spin. Uh, but isn't it interesting, though, as just kind of a quick side note, uh, Twitter is still letting Taliban and all their spokespeople use their platforms, but not the former president of the country. But I'm not going to digress and talk about Trump. But the interesting thing about what we're seeing now is it's all about COVID-19, 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 COVID-19. It's like wall-to-wall coverage all of a sudden. And here's the thing. I promise. I, I say this all the time, and then I say something that sounds conspiracy theory-ish after that. I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat, right? Just got the headphones on. It would not surprise me one bit if the Biden administration actually coordinated with the FDA to announce the Pfizer COVID vaccine FDA approval right at the magical time that the Biden administration needs a serious flushing of the news cycle. I mean, would that be shocking to anybody? You might say, oh, that's a separate entity and all that kind of thing. Do you really trust most of these government organizations and that there's not some sort of a political gain? What have we learned since the beginning of the COVID pandemic, except for the fact that these aren't neutral parties working in the federal government of any country, especially the United States of America? So it would not surprise me one bit uh, that the that this is kind of the new focus. And we're hearing about all these stories about, you know, mass mandates in schools and, you know, how teachers are apparently getting beat up by, by you know, people and, you know, parents and stuff like that. That's what the, the shift has been, because the media, the Biden administration, Joe Biden, they're pretty much hoping that you forget about what's going on in Afghanistan, especially because the next week or so is going to get way worse. And we'll certainly get more into that here in a second. But the next section I want to get into here are the immediate consequences of America's actions. Because 
there are consequences to every single one of these actions. And this is certainly one of those situations. The first consequence that I thought of is that the Taliban will flex and the Biden administration will allow it. Absolutely will allow it. I mean, just the language being used from the Biden administration right now is egregious. But as of right now, the, the Taliban has said, oh, no, 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 no. Joe Biden gave us a deadline of August the 31st where he would have all the Americans out of the country and we're going to hold him to that. Their spokesperson called it a red line, right? So the Taliban is probably going to hold a red line, unlike, you know, Barack Obama, who said there was a red line in Syria. And then uh, apparently the red line just got erased. But the Taliban is flexing and Joe Biden's not going to do anything about it. He does not want the news cycle to turn into American troops shot at the Taliban, Taliban shot, you know, American troops dead or any of those types of things. But they're just going to allow the Taliban to do whatever they want. So that's an immediate consequence. Another immediate consequence of what happened here is that there is a leadership vacuum that's been left. Right. When the United States, you know, abdicated leadership in the area that left a vacuum and China and Russia are all too eager to fill the gap within 24 hours of Kabul falling to the Taliban, the Chinese Communist Party and Russia basically announced to the world uh, whenever the Taliban gets fully established and they fully get everything uh, kind of taken care of and they get everything established the way that they like, they like, uh, we want to make sure that we support them. Right. And so China is going to going to be all too eager to help them build, build roads and, you know, give them money and internet and whatever stuff that they need. And Russia is going to be right there along with it. So that's an immediate consequence that we're going to have to deal with for a long period of time afterwards. Another immediate consequence is that the Taliban will certainly reinstitute Sharia law across the country. So if you think about it, we've been there for the last 20 years. There are young girls that are in high school and college that have been able to get an education. They've been able to go on dates. They've been able to not wear their hijab everywhere and all these different things and, you know, not have a a male escort everywhere that they go. That's no longer going to be the case. Sharia law is going to be reinstituted. We know that's going to happen. And another consequence is that the Taliban is already threatening Americans. Right. They're already basically signaling that there are going to be issues for not only the Americans left in country, but all the Americans that they run into across the world. They're already signaling that. Here's another thing. Al Qaeda and ISIS are going to make a comeback. We're already seeing reports of Al Qaeda and ISIS, you know, co coordination on certain things. And, you know, people have said, hey, Al Qaeda and the Taliban don't like each other. I think even one of our guests said that they don't like each other, but they're all working in concert with one another. And do you remember the reports that we had about the hundreds, if not thousands of prisoners that we had at Bagram? I believe it was at Bagram that were let go out of the prisons there. These were Al Qaeda and ISIS operatives and Taliban operatives. They're back with their people now, right? So all of these groups are going to make a comeback at the same time, right? And the last thing that I kind of notice here in terms of the immediate consequences because of America's actions is that the Taliban is going to take a victory lap and then they're going to keep doing that. They're just going to take victory lap after victory lap. So September the 11th of 2021 will be a celebration day for them, right? They're probably going to release more propaganda. They're probably going to put stuff online. They may even get, you know, an interview with their spokesperson on Al Jazeera, right? Who who the heck knows? Also, uh, they did a victory lap when they did their own mock Iwo Jima photo. So if you look at the artwork for this particular episode, that's the photo that the Taliban took of them putting up a Taliban flag, just like our Marines did in Iwo Jima back during World War II. And they're wearing our gear. They're wearing our helmets and nods and, and BDUs and our weapons, right? They're just man, they're dunking all over us right now. Okay. And here's the thing is these individuals at the Taliban, they are going to going to be accepting bribes from all these different countries that are trying to get their cooperation right now. And here's the thing, they're going to accept these bribes under the table only to talk about it later, very, very publicly. 
Okay, the Taliban is going to do everything that they can to make America and our allies look absolutely horrifically stupid right now, which, if you've been paying attention, is not that hard to do. You basically just have to point at this point. Uh, But now let's kind of shift into the blame game here because there's a lot of blame going around. But I want to put the blame squarely on uh, one set of shoulders here in just a second. So you've got Democrats that pretty much immediately and universally came out and started blaming George W. Bush and Donald Trump, right? They skipped over Obama, but you know, Bush for getting us in there in the first place for not having the great, the greatest of plans, you know, for taking people out of Afghanistan so we could go to Iraq because of WMDs that we didn't end up finding, blah, blah, blah. They want to talk about Trump and they want to talk about the fact that that Trump, you know, did a deal with the Taliban and you know, that that deal had to be honored, which is interesting because Joe Biden basically got rid of every single other deal that Donald Trump made and had every executive order ready to go on his first day in office. But somehow he kept this deal with the Taliban, which was a horrible deal, right? Then you have Republicans that are blaming Biden. And there's a lot of really great reasons for that. More on that in a second. Then we have co-president Biden. Uh, he's blaming the Afghan soldiers, right? He, he was all too eager to say, oh, look at how quickly they fell. And, you know, we'll certainly spend some more time talking about that. He just wanted to blame the Afghan soldiers. He wanted to blame Trump. He wanted to blame, come on, man. And he wanted to blame dog face pony soldiers and, and hey, fat and that's what Joe Biden's been doing for the last week. Uh, whenever he's not completely useless, he gets up in front of a teleprompter, reads words that someone else says, and then quickly runs away so the media can't ask him any other questions. Also, the Afghan people, and I asked this of Holly McKay, they're blaming the United States, but they're also blaming their own Afghan soldiers, which is interesting. Because they know that their military-aged males gave up. They know that these people gave up. And we'll get more into some of the reasons as to why they likely gave up here in a second. But the Afghan people are really, really angry. And I I saw a video today of of a man screaming at Joe Biden. This is an Afghan that can't get out of the country. And there's no way for him to, you know, basically ensure the safety of himself and his family. And he's blaming the United States, right? And and who could blame him for blaming us, right? But let's get into who I blame, okay? And this is not going to be a shock to anybody paying attention. But I blame Joe Biden. Because of course I would. Because the buck has to stop somewhere, right? So Joe Biden, the commander in chief, defied the counsel of literally, literally everyone and unilaterally made this decision. So he owns it. Again, he is the commander in chief. He is the final say on all military issues. And he said, pull out the troops by this date, regardless of what's going on on the ground, regardless of what the consequences are going to be thereafter. So obviously I blame Joe Biden because, because here's the other thing. People want to talk about the, the Afghans and, and, you know, the fact that they didn't stand and fight and the Taliban took them over sometimes without a fight. Sometimes they went right over the Taliban. The entire Afghan military's defense system was built and trained towards and, and predicated on the reality that they would have American air assets at their disposal. They would have United States Air Force assets and other assets and drone stuff that would be available to them so that they could fight against individuals. That's why we didn't have very many troops in country. Again, more on that here in a little bit. But that's what the entire strategy was, was to be able to push back the Taliban where they could on the ground and then also be able to utilize our close air assets to be able to help them out, right? For, for a myriad of different reasons, okay? So that's the who that I blame because Literally, that decision rested on one person's shoulders, and he made a horrible decision because he's an idiot. But there's also a what that I blame here. So that's the who, but there's a what. And the what that I blame is fundamentalist Islam. Because people want to talk about Islamic terrorism. They want to talk about Islamic extremism. But the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and Boko Haram and ISIS and all these groups that I've talked about a lot before, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, these are fundamentalists. 
Okay? So as a quick aside, we need to talk about what it says in the Quran. Because there is something called abrogation in the, in the Quran, right? So abrogation means there are some writings that were written a long time ago that were written and inspired by Muhammad, right? But then there are subsequent writings that are not abrogated or that are abrogated, basically saying these things that I wrote in the past, those aren't important anymore. What I'm writing to you now is what you need to know. This is what you need to carry forth into the future. So the ninth surah. Okay, that's basically how the Quran breaks down. It's like chapters or books or whatever. The ninth surah, that is the last, the very last writings given by Muhammad to Muslims. Okay, it's the least abrogated. Okay, I want to read some verses to you from Surah 9. So let's go to Surah 9, verse 5. But when the forbidden months are past, then fight and slay the pagans where ye find them, and seize them, beleaguer them, and lie in wait for them in every stage of war, or every stratagem of war, rather. But if they repent and establish regular prayers and practice regular charity, then open the way for them. For Allah is oft forgiving, most merciful. Okay, so by the way, what they're talking about is practice regular charity. That is enforced taxation at the threat of death. Okay, but let's stay in Surah 9 and go to verses 29 through 33. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth, even if they are the people of the book until they pay the jizya, that's, that's the tax, with willing submission, and feel themselves subdued. The Jews called Uzair a son of Allah, and the Christians call Christ the son of Allah. That is a saying from their mouth. In this, they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. Allah's curse be on them, how they are deluded away from the truth. They take their priests and their anchorites and their lords in derogation of Allah, and they take as their Lord Christ the son of Mary, yet they were commanded to worship but one Allah. There is no God but he. Praise and glory to him. Far is he from having the, par the partners they associate with him. Fain would they extinguish Allah's light in their mouths, but Allah would not allow but that his light should be perfected, even though the unbelievers may detest it. It is he who hath sent his messenger with guidance and the religion of truth to proclaim it over all regions, even, through, even though the pagans may detest it. Okay, and then we're going to stay in Surah 9 and here wrap up with verse 111. Allah hath purchased of the believers their persons and their goods for theirs in return is the garden of paradise. They fight in his cause and slay and are slain and promise binding on him in truth through the law, the gospel and the Quran. And who is more faithful to his covenant than Allah? Then rejoice in the bargain which ye have concluded. That is the achievement supreme. And then we're going to go from the Quran to the Hadith. So the Hadith, these are collections of words and actions of the Prophet Muhammad during his life, the so-called Prophet of Muhammad. And this is from one of the most famous Hadiths, and this is from the Hadith Sahih Bukhari, okay? So this is Hadith 124 of Sahih Bukhari, okay? I have been ordered by Allah to fight against people until they testify that none has the right to be worshipped but Allah, and that Muhammad is Allah's apostle, and offer the prayers perfectly and give the obligatory charity. Then they will save their lives and property from me. And then in uh, the same hadith, but hadith 125, it says this, summer, or actually, it doesn't actually say this verbatim, this is a summary here, but the, the greatest thing that a Muslim can do after having faith is to engage in jihad. Okay, so as if to clarify what kind of jihad, Sahih uh, Bakari actually clarifies and calls it religious fighting. That is the, the greatest thing that a Muslim can do after having faith is to fight religiously. Okay, that's what the Quran says. So whether a Muslim doesn't perform those deeds, doesn't participate in religious fighting, doesn't actually slay their enemy, this is what the majority of Muslims believe. Now, people like ISIS 
and groups like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and, again, Hamas, Boko Haram, all of them, these individuals are taking this, this non-abrogated scripture to its logical conclusion, right? Because if you will not acknowledge that you know, there is one God and his name is Allah and that he has one prophet and his name is Muhammad, that your, your options are very limited. You die or you pay a tax or you convert. That's it. That's fundamentalist Islam. That's not radical Islam. But let's go ahead and move on here. Because we need to go into the most egregious things that Joe Biden and his administration have done since the fall of Afghanistan. And there has been no shortage of things that have been absolutely horrific. But just a quick reminder before we get into this list. A couple of quick reminders. Barack Obama, right? So this is Barack Obama, you know, two-time president, you know, two times he had his vice president as Joe Biden. When he was asked about President Biden or, you know, Biden potentially running for president, he warned his allies, right, in the Democratic Party to not underestimate Biden's ability to F things up. That's a direct quote, apparently, not to underestimate Biden's ability to F things up. His own president, right, said that about him. And then former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, this was uh, Robert Gates, the Defense Secretary under Obama, he said, quote, I think he has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the past four decades, unquote. Again, these are two people from his administration. One guy was his main boss, right? Saying this guy's basically an idiot. He's basically a screw up. But let's go and get in some of the egregious things that he's done. So the Biden administration has essentially had to beg him. They, they essentially had to beg Joe Biden to come back from vacation. This was, you know, just last weekend, right? And so that he could read a statement that someone else prepared for him, which he clearly didn't read beforehand. And after those 20 minutes were up, he took no questions. He turned away from the podium. He hopped right back on Marine One and went back on vacation. Think about that. Afghanistan was literally falling into the hands of the Taliban, and he's somewhere doing something, right? He's not in the White House, and literally took several days of horrible news before the White House announced, like, okay, Biden's going to come back from Camp David. Astonishing, right? Another egregious thing is they're allowing, the Biden administration is allowing, they're, sorry, they're not allowing U.S. troops to go and get, oh, aka save, American citizens that are trapped inside the country and American allies, okay? So as far as I know, okay, I've heard about all these different countries doing it. The British, the Italians, the French, the Ukrainians, and several other countries, they, they have allowed their, their forces to go in and retrieve their citizens that are stuck in Afghanistan. They're not just waiting at the airport. Like, all right, if you guys can make it to the airport, you know, we'll make sure you get out of here safely. No, 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 no. They're going into the country and they're risking their own lives in order to protect and save their citizenry. But, the, you know, the greatest nation on earth with the biggest and best military on earth, the strongest fighting force ever, we're unwilling to do so. Again, because Joe Biden doesn't want a bad news cycle. He doesn't want a bad headline. American soldiers die trying to protect Americans stuck in Afghanistan or something like that. But every other country, including our allies, is taking care of their own people. But we're unwilling to do that. The Biden administration is. Another egregious thing is that they are treating the Taliban as if they are a legitimate government, as opposed to our enemy. Pretty much everyone in the State Department is, is talking about this group of people as if they're just some sort of like neutral group, right? There, there may be a country that we don't like very much, but they're legitimate all the, same, all the same. So we just need to be nice to them. We're not treating them or talking to them like they are our enemy, which they are. Which goes into the next thing, which is they're trusting. The Biden administration is trusting the Taliban to keep their word. And they're depending on them to be nice. 
because the Taliban's like, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll let your people out of here again. They got to be out by August 31st because that's the date that you set. And it'll be really bad if they're here afterwards. But yeah, sure. Let them come through. We won't do anything to them. They're trusting the Taliban. Some of the worst human beings on planet Earth in the history of humanity, even. You're trusting them to be nice and to be honest. You fools. It's unbelievable. And the next thing is <laughs> they've done away. The, the Biden administration is somehow in, in a blink of, blink of an eye. They've done away with the mantra, we don't negotiate with terrorists. Because that's exactly what we're doing now. Because Joe Biden set his withdrawal deadline, again, the withdrawal that he put in place, and he said publicly that this depends on Taliban cooperation. This depends on Taliban cooperation. Absolutely stunning admission. Our enemy that wants every single American to die, that's not a Muslim, right? And maybe even some that, that are American Muslims. They want us all to die. But gosh, you know what? We can't really do what we need to do unless the Taliban cooperates, as opposed to screw what the Taliban thinks. Even if you want to pull all the people out of the country right now, which, as we've seen, is not really a great idea. You should say, screw you guys. We're going to do whatever we can. You know, not we're not going to leave any stone unturned to get our people out. That's how much we care about American citizens. Joe Biden and his administration are like, eh, I don't really want to do that. It might end up being bad for us. But there was one thing that was especially egregious. That was just a really, really short thing. But this is a comment that has defined the Joe Biden administration and Joe Biden specifically as president, sorry, co-president, since he's been in office. And this should be a quote from him that should live in infamy. It should absolutely be that. We should be hearing this quote decades from now as one of the most egregiously, horribly stupid and evil and terrible things that we've heard an American president say while they were in office. Okay, so let's go ahead and go into the clip here. But we've all seen the pictures. We've seen those hundreds of people packed into a C-17. We've seen Afghans falling. That was four days ago, five days ago. What did you think when you first saw those pictures? It was four days ago. It's five days ago. Come on, this is supposed to be a, a puff piece interview. That was his response to Afghans that were clinging to airplanes, falling from them. Afghans packed in like sardines into an American aircraft because of a decision that he made. That is a direct result of a decision that he made. Ridiculous, evil in a lot of ways. And here's the other thing that I think is pretty egregious, and this is really reflective of the entire Biden administration, is that instead of doing what we should do, which is to speak softly and carry a big stick, you know, the Reagan way of doing things, they're speaking loudly and apparently the stick is up their butts. This was Biden's UN ambassador, right? The United Nations ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. She had this to say in an interview with CNN's Wolf Blitzer, Wolf Blitzer last week. It was absolutely insane. Quote, we are hearing from people in Afghanistan that they are getting threats from the Taliban. And we have expressed in no uncertain terms here at the United Nations through a very strongly worded press statement from the Security Council that we expect the Taliban to respect human rights, including the rights of women and girls. We have also indicated that they have to be respectful to, of humanitarian law, terrorists, that we do not expect to see the to Afghanistan will become a safe haven for terrorists. It's not their words that we will hold them to. It's their actions that we will be watching. Ooh, ooh no. Did they just say that they were going to give us a, a very strongly worded press statement? 
this whole time, I've been worried about bombs falling out of, the, out of the sky and hitting me on the top of my turban. Oh, man. But but gosh, if the U.N. sends a strongly worded press statement from the Security Council, my goodness, what are we going to do? Is that what you think the Taliban's doing right now? They're quaking in their boots because the U.N. is saying things? Do you honestly trust a terrorist organization? that believes in Sharia law, that they're going to honor the rights of women and girls. They don't believe that women and girls have any rights, right? It's just, what world are they living in? Because they're certainly not living in the one that we're all in. And, and here's the other thing that, you know, with the Biden administration, they've already moved on, okay? Jen Psaki's answering questions when she has to, and all those idiots from the Pentagon are answering questions when they have to. They've moved on. It's COVID-19 24-7. Since Joe Biden's been back from vacation, right? He has talked publicly about COVID-19 way more than he has about Afghanistan. And guess what? COVID-19 is a real thing. It's something that we're having to deal with. There are people that are dying. There are people that are having some issues with it, right? It's not going anywhere. He doesn't want to talk about anything else. He's trying to get everybody to focus back on COVID-19 because he can control the COVID news cycle, right? They can talk about new variants and they can talk about booster shots and they can send Dr. Fauci out there to say his stupid crap that he likes to say. But that's what they've done. They've moved on. They don't care about Afghanistan anymore. Not really. Right. And the last thing I'll go into here on Joe Biden and his administration is that he specifically I'll, I'll just talk about Joe Biden. Well, no, this is all of them. But, you know, specifically Joe Biden, they're blaming everyone. OK. Except themselves. Joe Biden specifically is blaming everyone he possibly can blame except for himself and the people inside his administration. Okay. There's no extreme ownership whatsoever. And so here's the thing that's interesting about this. Like when Afghanistan was falling, a lot of people, especially in my sphere of influence and in my world, they immediately thought to themselves, you know, what would Jocko have to say about this? What would Jocko Willink be saying about this? Because he fought over there. He has brothers that have died over there. It's just kind of one of those things. A few days ago, he posted a video on Instagram and it was amazing. It's had over a million views at this point. I don't guess if, it, if it's technically gone viral, but a lot of guys have been sharing this around and it's not on his YouTube channel or anything like that. Um, and I'm going to play this video for you right now in its entirety. It's about three minutes long. And this is Jocko as if he were the president and what he would be saying right now to the country. Okay. Now here's, here's my little caveat right here. I did a, I did a bunch of research to try and figure out, you know, the, the parameters around me even being able to share this video. I don't think it's technically copyrighted. I don't think I'm going to get dinged by, by YouTube or all that, but I can't know until I actually put it up, whether it's going to get dinged or not. So there is a chance if you're listening to this at some point in the distant future, that this next section is going to be deleted out. And so I'm going to be doing this big intro for something that's not going to happen. So if that ends up happening in the show notes, I will have a link to this video, but otherwise I'm just going to go ahead and play this for you here. Good evening. I wanted to give you an update on the current situation in Afghanistan. As you know, we were set to leave Afghanistan this month. And as we began the final drawdown, I made some critical errors. Namely, I underestimated the strength of the Taliban and I overestimated the strength and capability of the friendly Afghan forces. This was my fault. And due to my mistake, the Taliban has taken control of Afghanistan. There are reports now that ISIS and Al-Qaeda are working alongside them. Unfortunately, there are tens of thousands of Americans on the ground there, as well as friends and allies of America on the ground. 
And these people, Americans and our allies, are all stranded. And that is my fault. But they will not be stranded for long. In the next 48 hours, America will be in control of most major airports in Afghanistan. Any resistance we meet from the Taliban or otherwise when we seize these airports will be destroyed completely and without mercy. From those airports, we will conduct rapid strike rescue missions until we have recovered and evacuated all our citizens, allies, and friends. Any person that interferes with these operations will be killed. We will also recover or destroy all aircraft, vehicles, weapons, and sensitive equipment that we left behind. Any person utilizing, guarding, or located in close proximity to these weapons or equipment will be killed. Once we have evacuated all friendly personnel and recovered or destroyed the weapons and equipment left behind, we will depart Afghanistan. But we will continue to monitor everything that happens in Afghanistan through our ground and airborne surveillance equipment. Terrorist training camps or activity will be targeted and destroyed. Gross violations of human rights will be stopped through overwhelming force. And any group in Afghanistan fighting for freedom, liberty, and basic human rights will be supported through special operations forces and ruthless precision air power. We will continue that dedicated support until the enemy is no longer a threat to humanity or to the good people of Afghanistan. May God bless America and may God have mercy on the souls of our enemy because we will not. That is all. Even now, even now, just re listening and re watching that man. I mean, powerful, powerful stuff. That's what leadership looks like. And again, you might say, okay, yeah, that's dramatic. He's not actually the president, different things like that. We can pretty much rest assured that, you know, this was a guy that was waking up at four o'clock and 4.30 in the morning every morning to work out well before anyone knew he was doing it on Instagram. We can assume he would say the same thing if he was in that position. And it just makes me lament the fact that we don't have someone in the White House that's willing to speak that way. Because that is a message that we can all galvanize around. Absolutely. We, we can all get behind a message like that, regardless of what we think about the situation in Afghanistan and whether or not we should have been there and blah, blah, all those different things. Okay. So again, that, that's my list of things that were just absolutely egregious by the Joe Biden administration and really their abdication of leadership. But now I'm going to get into some messages that I have for particular groups of people. And there's a lot of groups of people here that I think need to get a little talking to some groups a little bit more than others. So let's go and get into this here. This is my message to the, we should have never been there in the first place crowd. Okay. To that crowd, I would say, watch this and remember how it made you feel the first time you saw it.
for those of you that are just listening to the show and you didn't actually see the visual on YouTube, first of all, you should make sure you go subscribe in YouTube so you can actually see the visual. But some of you might even recognize that audio. That was video of the second plane going into the second Twin Tower on September the 11th, 2001. We should have never been there in the first place. Never been there in the first place. I want to remind you that that's part of the reason why we went there in the first place. Because the Taliban was protecting the people that pulled off that attack that killed 3,000 plus Americans, which was not an inside job, you unbelievably idiotic nerds. And here's the other thing. What about the people that were falling from the Twin Towers that day? Because they were left with the choice of either be burned alive or to jump. Remember that? And, and here's the other thing that I found that was very, very interesting. I see the Americans falling from the Twin Towers and the Afghans falling from the U.S. military planes as the same people. I see that as the same image. The first time I saw those people falling from the planes in Afghanistan, I immediately thought of the people that were falling from the Twin Towers. Immediately. Okay? And here's the thing, is these people in Afghanistan, they, they weren't clinging to these planes, right, and trying to get into the landing gear right? Because they were worried about systemic racism or, or being concerned about someone misgendering them or the absence of free health care or because their student debt was too high. These people saw that as the only pathway to potential further life. And much like the people in the Twin Towers, it was their last gas, their last hope at, at maintaining their own personal autonomy, right? It's impossible to put yourself up in one of those upper stories on the Twin Towers and you see the smoke, you see the fire, you can feel the fire and your last decision that you've made is to jump. We can't put ourselves there. But I see those as the same thing, okay? And for all these people in America that are calling America this horribly racist and terribly patriarchal place, right? You know, all these horrible people. It's super interesting to me that these people are not clinging to airplanes trying to get out of the United States, right? They're not trying to get out. But here are these desperate Afghans that are clinging to these planes in the hope that one day they might end up in the United States of America, a country which, as we've been reliably informed, is horrifically racist, patriarchal, oppressive, and it's the worst place in the world to be. Think about that. Because a lot of these leftists in America, they don't actually mean it. Because if they meant it, they'd get the hell out. But they don't mean it. But these Afghans meant it. They wanted out. And they knew the likelihood of death was high. But they did what they could to try and get out. To get here. So that's my message to those people. But here's also my message to the we have to stop these enlist wars crowd. This was by no means whatsoever an endless war. But by no means, by, by like no level of definition, okay? As many people know now, but didn't know before two weeks ago, we've had zero combat deaths in Afghanistan in 18 months, which doesn't make the previous sacrifices any less brave or heroic or sad. But that's not an endless war. Because a lot of people think that they, they, were, they were looking at Afghanistan, you know, in 2020 and early 2021, as if it was Vietnam at the height of the battle there against the Viet Cong. Right. They're thinking of it as the worst, you know, warfare in World War One or World War Two or the Korean War. That's the way that they're seeing this. OK, but again, most Americans, including myself, as I've admitted on previous episodes, we had no idea 
that there was basically no serious fighting going on over there, that the situation was fairly well handled, even with the skeleton crew of troops that we had over there. So to this endless wars crowd, this is the problem with bumper sticker sloganeering. Because you hear people say that, and, and it sounds right. It's like, yeah, we've been there for 20 years. What have we gotten? You know, the country's still not, you know, a full-fledged democracy. And, you know, gosh, you know, we just need to hurry up and get everybody home. And we got to stop these endless wars. There's so much more to it. That's what happens when you do a univariable analysis. That's exactly what happens. Now, here's my message to the, we can't just leave our soldiers there forever crowd. Okay. A few things that you're perhaps not aware of. World War II ended in 1945. Okay. But we still have troops in Germany and Italy, even to this day. Even to this day. The Korean War ended in 1953. And we still have troops in South Korea. Okay. And now I want to go over some numbers that might be shocking to you. These are the numbers, the, the best that I could possibly find. They won't be exact, but it's the, exact, but it's the most up to date I was able to find about U.S. troops currently deployed in countries overseas. Okay. We have around 54,000 troops in Japan, 36,000 troops in Germany, 26,000 in South Korea, 13,000 in Italy, 10,000 in the U.K., 4,000 in Bahrain, 3,000 in Spain. 2,000 in Turkey, 2,000 in Australia, 1,500 in Saudi Arabia, 1,000 in Kuwait, 1,000 in Belgium. And we're literally in dozens more countries than that. I think we're in over 100 countries at this point, okay? And just a reminder, when co-president Biden decided to pull us out of Afghanistan, we had less than 3,000 troops left in country. Okay, now to be fair to all those countries that I listed before, we're not in active everyday battles and conflicts in those other countries but neither were we in Afghanistan before we left. It was not a completely safe situation, but it was not a precarious situation by any stretch of the imagination, like not whatsoever. So for these individuals that are like, oh, we got to get our boys out. Do you mean that everywhere? Like, do you literally want us to be completely isolationist and take the hundreds of thousands of troops that we have elsewhere and bring them back? Is that what you want? Now here's my message to the, we should never try to nation build again crowd. I largely agree with you. Okay. Because especially in Afghanistan, when we try to do this nation building type thing, many of these people don't want democracy. They don't want it. Democracy does not fit with their worldview and the things that they want. Okay. Because guys, in less than a week, th these people went from pseudo 21st century democracy type people back to the seventh and eighth century tribal rule within a week. It doesn't seem like they wanted our style of government, right? And this is, this is the clash of worldviews. If you listen to the briefing with Albert Mueller, I think he talked about this on Monday. It's a clash of worldviews here because the majority of Muslims around the world, whether they practice Sharia law and jihad, they agree with it, which is astonishing to us as Americans. Most of these people agree with the dictates of Sharia law, which doesn't look anything like modern American life and hopefully stays that way forever, right? But it's just not something that they wanted. So if you're trying to build a nation in a way that you want, but the people there don't want it, it's not something that's sustainable in the long term. Here's my message to the, it's America's fault that those people hate us crowd. Because there's a lot of people in that crowd, right? It's only stuff that we've done wrong that is causing them to feel this way. But I'll say something that Dan Crenshaw says all the time. Those people over there, they hate us because they hate us. Okay? The Taliban and all the other groups like them, they hate us because they hate us. 
It has nothing to do with what we've done or not done. Now, you can make an argument that, you know, if a little boy, his dad was in the Taliban and, you know, the, the Taliban was killed by U.S. forces and that made him mad and he didn't have his dad. And by the time he's 16, you know, another Taliban guy's, you know, ready to put an AK-47 in his hand or a bomb on his chest and say, hey, we're going to go kill some Americans. Maybe that's going to inspire them. But that's not where the story started. OK, right. It started way back before then. OK, this has nothing to do with us in, in terms of what we've done. It's because of who we are and what we represent. We represent a freedom that these people don't want their people to have, okay? So it's ridiculous to say that it's our fault. The next question, or I guess the next message here would be, and this is to co-president Biden, okay? This would be my message to them. You're a feckless coward. And that's probably the nicest thing I could think to say directly to co-president Biden at this moment. There's a lot of other things I'd like to say, but kind of a family program here. Next message. This would be my message to the never Trumpers, right? To the conservatives or the Republicans that ended up being Biden voters in the last election in 2020. This is just a reminder to you. When you're voting against someone, you have to remember that you're voting for someone. So Democrats are were very eager to get out and vote against Donald Trump. You know, conservatives that were kind of on the fence, they just couldn't bring themselves to voting for a guy like Trump. They just couldn't have a vote for Trump on their record. You got to remember, there's someone on the other side of the ticket. And in order to vote against Orange Man Bad, you had to vote for the guy that's not alive. Okay? And look at where we are now. Look at where we are as a country. This virus that Joe Biden said he was going to have under control by July. Yeah. How's that working out? Right. The Southern border is an absolute atrocity, right? But the, the, the economy is not responding in the way that it should have. We can't get our people to go back to work. Uh, businesses are crumbling, even though they're allowed to be open. There's threats of more lockdowns. We have kids being taught in school that their friends are vectors of transmission and they themselves are vectors of transmission. And when they're not talking about masking and doing all those things, they're basically telling these kids, oh, you were born white, so you're an oppressor, telling little kids that. This is the Joe Biden country, right? Is this the country you wanted? Are things better now than they were two years ago pre-COVID? Are things better? Because guess what? I will take angry, loud, bombastic, and rude leadership over no leadership at all, any day. So again, you may have Donald Trump on a ballot at some point in the future. And I've already given my opinions on that, right? I'm, I'm not very happy about that potentiality for the future. And I don't think it's going to end up well for Republicans if that happens. But anytime, as you move forward in the future, right? When you just can't vote for someone that seems so bad because the media has portrayed them in that way, right? Including the things that they do that are actually bad. I want you to remember that there is somebody else that you are having to vote for in order to do that. Now, this is my message to the, we shouldn't be the world's police crowd. You hear a lot of people, we shouldn't be, you know, team America, world police. We shouldn't be doing that. How are you liking the world when America is so emasculated and weak? Are you enjoying this world? Are you enjoying the images of what's going on in Afghanistan right now? Is that something that you enjoy? Because anytime that we put our fingers into anything going on in any other country, you get really offended. Oh, we shouldn't be there. We shouldn't be the world's police. And that's people on both sides as well. Do you like this? I'm assuming that you don't. 
Now, here's my message also to the Afghan war fighters, okay? To the ones that basically ran away when the Taliban came. So it's hard for me, and it should be hard for you to hear, U.S. service members that served in Afghanistan say things like, you know, we knew this would happen eventually because the Afghans won't fight. They're cowards. They're weaklings. Like, they, they just don't have it in them, okay? By now, I know a lot of you Afghan soldiers that are still alive because you haven't been beheaded by the Taliban yet have heard feedback similar to that, probably from your own countrymen, hopefully from your own countrymen, right? And I guess my question to you would be like, are you going to let feedback like that and commentary like that paralyze you or galvanize you? Because at the end of the day, you did leave your post. You did give up. You didn't fight back in a lot of these situations. What are you going to do with that moving forward? Which goes into my message to military-aged males still left in Afghanistan. And I'm going to tread very, fairly carefully here. Those first images and videos that we saw of people rushing the airports, trying to get on the planes, holding onto the planes, or actually getting onto the planes, they all had one thing in common. They all looked to be military-aged males. So here are hundreds and thousands of military-aged males that are trying to get out of the country and not fight for their country. As an American, that seems very odd to me, considering our history and what we've done historically during warfare, right? So to the military-aged males still left in Afghanistan, apparently there are some Afghan forces that are pushing back, that are rebelling against what the Taliban is doing. And they have weapons, and they have training, and they have capability. Now, the reason why I'm not spending a lot of time on this is because I have not heard fully corroborated reports for how well they're doing, but there are apparently areas where they are definitely, you know, sticking it to the Taliban, right? So as opposed to running, perhaps you can join the fight. Now, here's my message to innocent Afghans. I'm so sorry that this is happening. Me personally, I'm not responsible for what's happening over there because one, I did not serve over there. And two, I am not pulling the levers of government right now. But I am so sorry that the United States of America, the greatest country in the history of the planet, has allowed this to happen to you. Because you are going to see a lot of death and a lot of destruction, and you're going to see the foundations of what you had built there over the last couple of decades crumble if, you know, any more that it has already, right? Even more so. And I'm so sorry about that. And again, as you've heard me say on this podcast before, I'm not big on apologizing for other people. I mean, if you need to apologize, don't have someone else do it. You need to be the one to do it. But in this particular instance, I feel, I feel so bad that I want to apologize on behalf of the entire country. I hate that this is happening to you. But now I want to move on to my message to active duty military, so people that are still serving, okay? To be clear, this is not a you problem. It's a them problem, okay? And, and the them that I'm referring to are the generals that are supposedly leading you, okay? So Jack Carr actually did another article uh, recently with townhall.com, and he said this, tactically, we are the most effective fighting force on the face of the earth. Operationally, we have serious issues in large part due to a promotion system that rewards mediocrity. Any frontline soldier who has been in a bub, that's the battlefield update brief, with staff officers and their PowerPoints will be acutely familiar. 
Rose-colored assessments that only got rosier as the graphs and figures were polished on their way up the chain of command. Strategically, we are a complete failure and have been since the 1960s. Once again, as the situation continues to deteriorate in Afghanistan, the frontline soldier, sailor, airman, and marine will bear the brunt of their senior leader's failures, unquote. That's true. It's seemingly true. We have not done well in a lot of the areas where we should have done well. And I think Jack Carr pointed this out. I'll, I'll try to remember it in, a, in the, put it in the show notes. One of the first things he put out in a blog is that, you know, things started to go poorly for us when we changed ourselves from the Department of War to the Department of Defense, right? But seemingly to the military men that are listening to this, your superiors are way too worried about being promoted and about other things like climate change or COVID or white rage or diversity right now. They seem to be focused on those things. They just apparently don't have time to worry about the lethality of the U.S. military. And I know that puts you in a tough spot because maybe you're 11 years in, you were thinking you were going to put in your 20. I don't know what this is going to look like for you until we get another person in office. I really don't. But I have a couple more messages left before we move on. This is my message to Afghan war vets. So veterans that actually served in Afghanistan. To those that are feeling like their sacrifices were in vain. The sacrifices of just being over there. Perhaps you left blood over there. Perhaps you left limbs over there. Most of you, if not all of you, left brothers over there. I will echo the sentiments of the people I had on the podcast last week. What you did was not in vain. The best thing that I could possibly think to say is you gave the Afghan people hope that there could be something better than the world that they were living in. What more can you do? If you went over there and you did what you were told and you acted heroically and whatever your job was, whether you were, you know, scooping macaroni and cheese in the mess hall or you were, you know, out beyond the wire every single night killing bad guys, you did what was required of you to keep their country safe as well as you could, but also to keep us safe here. No more 9-11 style attacks here on the home front. That's because of you. And I'm so thankful that you did that. And I will forever be indebted to you for doing such a thing. And my last message here is to Gold Star families. So this one's a little bit harder. So obviously I had a couple of Gold Star widows uh, from last week, you know, Taya Kyle and Michelle Black. Um, And obviously their circumstances are a little bit different in terms of how they lost their loved ones. But there's a lot of people right now that they don't want to hear the, you did your job, right? They don't want to hear, you know, it was good for 20 years. They're only looking at the outcome. And they're looking at a picture on the mantle and a folded up flag. And they're thinking, I'd rather have my son, right? I'd rather would have had him for the last 20 years. I'd rather see him grow up and have family. I want grandkids, right? And they're not going to get that opportunity. So my message to you is that I am just so very sorry. I'm so unbelievably sorry that this is happening. This is such a horrible situation and I cannot imagine how hard it must be for you to be going through this. There, there really aren't any words that I can give you to comfort you. And all I hope is that somehow we will be able to make this situation right in Afghanistan. But that hopefully your son or daughter that lost her life overseas was doing that because that's where they wanted to be. They wanted to be in the fight and they wanted to be protecting this country. And they saw it as their civic and patriotic duty. So, again, I, 
I'm not really happy with, with my words there, but it's the only words I got for you. I'm just so, so very sorry. But outside of just the persecution and all the other horribly violent things that are happening right now in Afghanistan, this is causing and will continue to cause a refugee problem in that country, right? And maybe in the entire area. And so this has caused quite a bit of debate in our country and in other countries as well. Um, because you have people saying like, okay, you know, we have no responsibility to take these people into our country. Let's resettle them over there. Or no, we need to bring everybody here no matter what. And it's on both sides of the aisle. There's not really like a clear vision as to kind of what's happening. And just to kind of remind you, a refugee is, that's a person who's being forced to leave their country in order to escape war or persecution or natural disaster or famine or something like that. And in the Bible, they're also called a sojourner. That's someone that, you know, temporarily resides in a place, right? Maybe they don't completely relocate there. But there are a lot of political and public safety questions that come along with this, you know, forthcoming refugee crisis, right? Because we're still in the middle of just trying to get our own people out, but we're trying to get allies out that are actually Afghans that we're trying to get over here, maybe get them, you know, temporary citizenship or actual full citizenship, whatever the situation is. But there are a lot of questions that come up. And one of them is like, where will we relocate these people to? To other places in the Middle East near Afghanistan? To, to our neighborhoods, right? Then, then it begs the question, you know, will we relocate just them? Or are we going to kind of do a string migration type thing? Are we going to relocate these people and their entire extended family? That's an important debate that we're not going to really get into here, but that's an important question to think about. Also, who's going to pay for the relocations and the subsequent and likely required welfare of these people that are relocated wherever they're relocated? Uh, you know, what do we do or how do we know that these people are who they say they are? Some of these people don't have papers. Some of these people have gotten their passports taken away or destroyed by the Taliban. How do, how do we know they are who they say they are? And then, you know, how do we know that we're not relocating terrorists into the interior of our country? Because if I'm Al-Qaeda and the Taliban and, and ISIS, I'm making sure there's some of our people on these planes. And some people are like, oh, that's kind of an outmoded fear. I don't really feel like that's really legitimate. But how do we know that? Right. Which. They could have just done this a whole lot easier. They could just fly anywhere into, you know, uh, South America and just make their way through Mexico into the country and no one would even stop them. Um, but then also, if, if Democrats and leftists are right, why would we even want to relocate these brown people, right, as they would call them, to the most racially oppressive country in the history of the planet, right? Because again, as I talked about earlier, I've been reliably informed that we are the worst. We are literally the worst country ever in history, right? But I want to kind of diverge away from a lot of the political talk, which is kind of what we've been doing here for the last hour or so, to go into what the Bible has to say about specifically refugees and sojourners, because there's a lot to really talk about in this particular situation. So in Genesis 127, we see this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so, so this is the introduction of the Imago Dei, the image of God. Okay, so this is every single person that's ever been born. They have the Imago Dei, every single one of them, okay? And as a quick side note, this is the exact reason why we look at what's happening right now on the ground over there in Afghanistan, and we know it's wrong. We know it's wrong. And it's because this is not just another case of a highly evolved monkey that wears pants and, and talks taking advantage of a weaker highly evolved monkey that wears pants and talks, right? That's how we know. Because all of us inherently have the Imago Dei, and we know there's value in us as sentient beings, okay? Then also, the Bible says this in Psalm 139, 13 through 14. For you have formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So every single person, again, ever, they have the Imago Day, and they were fearfully and wonderfully made with a purpose to glorify God. Okay, but then we have God, you know, speaking to the Israelites through Moses in Leviticus 19. This is verses 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. Okay. And that really gets into, we have a lot of Bible characters, right? That had to flee their homes because of, you know, they were refugees or sojourners. So we have Abraham and, uh, you know, he had to leave because of famine. So we see that in Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was severe in the land. Also with famine, we have Jacob's sons later on in Genesis 47, verse four. They, uh, they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then we have Elimelech, Naomi, and their sons in Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So there were examples right there in scripture of people that became refugees because of famine. We also have this because of warfare. So Rahab, as described in Joshua of, uh, chapter 6, verses uh, 24 and 25, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And he has lived in Israel to this day because he hit, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So because of warfare, there were people that were displaced and made refugees then. But also we see this because of persecution. So we have King David in 1 Samuel 21.10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Okay, so that was King David that had to leave at one point. Then we have Elijah in 1 Kings 19.1-3. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. And then we have King Jesus, right? So we see this in the Gospels, but specifically in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill, uh, fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Okay. So lots of examples of refugees and sojourners. Okay. But also I want to kind of point out that God through scripture uses the concept of a, a refugee or a sojourner and citizenship as a metaphor for how God saves us through Jesus Christ. Okay, so we see that with Paul in Ephesians. Uh, this is chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and then we're going to skip to 19. So again, Ephesians 2, starting in chapter 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, this is verse 13, now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now to verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
Okay, so that's the interesting thing for us. We need to be thinking as American Christians about this situation and be thinking about these people in this way. And this is outside of the politics. Okay, I know we're probably going to get into politics later, maybe in a different podcast or something like that. There's a lot of political questions that need to be answered, a lot of logistical questions that need to be answered here. But at this particular moment, as American Christians, this is how we should remember these people. Okay, this is how we should remember to think about these people. And this is kind of getting into the next section, which is what is the proper posture? for Christians in America at this time. Okay. And the only thing I could really think of this just kept coming up for me is to suffer with those who suffer and to mourn with those who mourn. So we're going to go back to scripture here. So suffer with those who suffer. And we get that from first Corinthians uh, chapter 12 verses 13 and then 25 through 26. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And then to mourn with those who mourn. This is Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. So I think an appropriate posture right now for us as American Christians is to realize there is a lot of suffering. That's already happened. A lot is going on currently, and there's a lot more to come with these people. There are a lot of people, they're, they're mourning things that have, have just happened or mourning things that will happen. And the best thing that we can do is to suffer with those who suffer and to mourn with those who mourn, okay? Because there are a lot of people, not just Christians in Afghanistan, that are going to be suffering through all this. The mourning is going to be absolutely horrific, and who knows how many months, years, or decades we're going to have to be dealing with this, right? But now I'm going to get into the action steps, okay? And these are going to seem kind of simple, but I do want to give us some practical things that we can do as, as members of this, you know, undaunted life community. So the first one is to obviously pray for the innocent Afghans. Pray for them. Because there's not a whole lot that we can do. Most of us can't physically go over there and do anything to actually help these people get out. But we can pray for them, and there's certainly power in prayer. But not just for the innocent Afghans. We should also pray for the Taliban. And that just sucks, even saying out loud, to pray for the Taliban. Because I, like many of you, I want them all to die. And maybe right before they die, they accept Christ or something like that. It's hard for me to think of them in any other way other than an enemy combatant that I want to see dead on the battlefield, right? But right now, since the United States has abdicated leadership in the area, we can't enforce any type of worldview or any, uh, provide any type of aid unless we go back with kind of full force of our troops, which I don't think the Biden administration has a stomach for. The Taliban's in control. Pray for the hearts of the Taliban to be changed. Uh, there's an incredible thing going on in that part of the country right now where Middle Easterners are being uh, converted be it via the Holy Spirit, providing dreams to people. There's tons of stories of, of Muslims that are converting to Christianity because they've been basically haunted in their dreams by Jesus, right? An amazing thing, something we don't really experience here. The Holy Spirit will get his work done, right? So pray for the innocent Afghans, pray for the Taliban, but also act boldly when and where possible, but be careful, okay? I was... Uh, planning on, on reading some text messages from somebody that I know that is doing some work over in that area. Uh, but I can just basically sum it up here by saying there are a lot of organizations right now that are raising money that have no capability to move the needle, like none whatsoever. These are people that are raising 
lots of money, and I'll leave them nameless, but I, I think you could probably even think of some. They're raising a ton of money, but they're not actually getting people out of the country. They have no way of getting people from the outskirts of Afghanistan or from the city of Kabul to the airport. They have no way of getting them there safely, but they're raising money, right? And it's, it's a hard thing to kind of sit here, but this was the best advice that my buddy who remained nameless, this is what they told me. They basically said, there are going to be some organizations that start coming out that are obviously moving the needle that are literally getting people out. They're getting them to surrounding areas. They're not getting in the way of the other processes and we should support those organizations. So again, I'm going to go ahead and transition to that part now. There are some organizations that I'm comfortable referring you to at this point if you want to act with your dollars, okay? So the first is called Save Our Allies, and all this will be in the show notes. But that is a joint coalition with No One Left Behind, the Independence Fund, and the Mighty Oaks Foundation. So a podcast alum, Chad Robichaux, this is what his group is doing. They are actually chartering flights out of host nations. So they are apparently legitimately moving the needle and actually getting Afghans and, and getting U.S. citizens and getting interpreters and getting all those people out of the country and flying them to safety via host nations. Okay. That is my understanding. Okay. Which with all these people, I reserve the right later to apologize for sending you that way. But through some other back channels, I was able to confirm that that is essentially what Save Our Allies is doing. Okay. Now, the rest of these suggestions are coming directly from Holly McKay. So I'm actually just reading directly from her her email. Um, all of these will be in the show notes as well. These are the organizations that she has vetted that she would like uh, people to support as well. So the first is Emergency USA. And so again, I'm just reading from her email here. As an honorary board member of Emergency USA for the past four and a half years, I can personally attest to the incredible work this organization has done and continues to do for Afghans in need. While much needed media attention, uh, while much media attention in recent days has been focused on the calamity surrounding the Kabul airport, let's not forget that the embattled Afghans left behind uh, were left behind with nowhere left to go and no prospect of leaving anytime soon. Emergency USA not only has a critical hospital to treat the war wounded in the heart of Kabul, it also offers life-saving medical services across the country far from the media's purview. Millions of Afghan lives have been saved since 1994. We must keep emergencies doors open for nations most vulnerable. Uh, so those links are in the description here. Then we have Stronghold Rescue and Relief. My friend Efrem Matos, a former Navy SEAL, founded this organization in 2019 as a means to support those dire uh, in dire need around the world with uh, as little overhead as possible. He personally calls each of the few Afghan interpreters on their assistance index each night, ensuring them in these uncertain times that their their cases are being worked on and crafting the best plan and a plan of action toward a safe and swift evacuation. This helps to keep families calm and hold the ethos of no person left behind. There are still many Americans who love and care for those who serve shoulder to shoulder with our troops. The focus of Stronghold these past few weeks has been on creating land routes out of Afghanistan to smuggle out Afghan families who will inevitably be left behind. This underground railroad of sorts will be pivotal as the U.S. makes its final departure and the Hamzad Karzai International Airport, or HKIA, falls into the Taliban's grip and there is nowhere left for allied Afghans to go. Okay. So that's uh, obviously Afromatos, a alum of the podcast as well. We would like for you to support him. Next organization is Women for Afghan Women. As we all know, women and girls have the most to lose when it comes to the Taliban takeover, and many are deeply fearful for their lives and future. Thus, Women for Afghan Women serves as the largest women's organization in Afghanistan, according to its website. At present, it is accepting donations to help provide safe shelter, resources, and aid to the thousands of women, children, families, and staff. So that link will be in the show notes. Then we have Reporters Without Borders, again, reading from Holly's email here. As a journalist and writer myself, the pillars of free speech and shining the light in the darkness, in the darkest of 
of places are the backbones to decisions and policy initiatives. Afghan journalists are some of the most extraordinary in the profession and the incredible press apparatus in the country is one of slim success of slim successes of the past two decades. Uh, is one of the slim successes of the past two decades. I apologize. Sadly, Afghan journalists have lost that achievement in the blink of an eye and are almost all running for their lives. RSF is working to advocate on behalf of journalism in Afghanistan, as well as support those who need safe passage out. And then the last one is International Rescue Mission, or IRC. Uh, they, they have set up a forum in which we can all raise our voices to the White House and urge the Biden administration to take immediate action in guiding Afghans to safety. So again, all those links are in the show notes. I know that took a while to get through, but we're kind of bringing it to a... a, uh, a conclusion here. So I want to tell you guys why I decided to call this podcast The Lasting Death. Okay. And if you're still listening right now, again, we're really appreciative that you're listening to all this and taking in all this information. Okay. Especially some of the more action oriented type things. But the reason I wanted to call this The Lasting Death, the first reason is because the deadly ripple effect of Americans withdrawal will last years, if not decades. Again, I, I agree with the people that think that things are going to get way worse inside of Afghanistan before they get better. So if you thought people falling from planes and, you know, people getting their heads chopped off in public executions and Christians being hunted down and murdered and, you know, families having to put X's on their doors and their kids being taken away as child sex slaves, if you thought that was bad, it's about to get way worse. Okay. So it will be a lasting type of thing. It will be a lasting death. But all the while I was thinking through this and kind of coalescing my thoughts to bring it to you, there's really only one true lasting death. And that is an eternity spent apart from Christ. So this is my dire word to you and to anyone listening to this that is not a Christ follower, that you need to do so. Because he's the only way for us to the Father. All you have to do is confess that you're a sinner, repent from your sins, acknowledge that you can't save yourself, right? You can't determine where you go when you die. Like you're not the one in control, right? You have to admit that you need a savior and you have to commit your life to Christ. Just a few quick scriptures here. John three sixteen. what most people know for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then Romans five, eight, but God shows his love for us. in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, nine. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then John 14, 6, I alluded to it just a second ago. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So to the people in Afghanistan, we should be praying that this becomes a reality for them, that the church would continue to grow somehow in Afghanistan when all they're trying to do is to stamp it out. But also for you listening to this right now, this is a message for all of us. That if we don't accept Christ, it's not a beautiful picture for us after we pass on. Every worldview has an origin story, a meaning story, a morality story, and a destiny story. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Origin, where did we come from? Meaning, why are we here? Morality, what's the difference between good and evil? Destiny, where do we go when we die? That's the Christian story, and we have to accept it. 
All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to this rather long podcast, but we are going to do a quick resilience boost before we let you go. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a lot of links for you. First of all, I've got the, uh, you like how my voice cracked there here at the end? I, I saved it all the way to the end, you guys. I'm doing my best here, okay? But I've got that YouTube video of Ben Shapiro. It's called In the Graveyard of Empires, America's War in Afghanistan Explained. So that's going to be for you in the show notes. Also, I have the articles from Jack Carr. One is called The United States Withdrawal from Afghanistan. And then the second one is a time for a bold adjustment fire the generals so that was the one that he put in town hall then i've got that instagram uh, jocko willing video that i played for you earlier again it might may or may not be there in the actual body but it is here at the very end also, I've got a link to Holly McKay's Substack, so you need to subscribe at her Hubstack or Substack because you're going to be able to get more information as to kind of what's going on on the ground and ways that you can help moving forward. And then I've got links to all the organizations I talked about earlier that I'm comfortable referring you to. That's Save Our Allies, Emergency USA, Stronghold Rescue and Relief, Women for Afghan Women, Reporters Without Borders, and International Rescue Committee. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the podcast episode. I really do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, you can just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's just I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. Also, you can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming. Just go to www.undaunted.life. We also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album leveler the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah